0: Welcome to this episode of the Revolution and Ideology Podcast. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Uh, we're going to take a break uh, from our Myth is America series and kind of do a revisit to our Revolution and Ideology concept, which is really the first reason we started this podcast anyways. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Karl Marx's concept of alienation, but more importantly, how that relates to your life today. So we're going to go over some philosophy, Uh, of Marx's thought, and I'll read some quotes, and then uh, we're going to focus, I hope, most of our time just applying this to uh, modern society and everyone's daily life. Uh, We were inspired to do this episode because I just did a lecture on this in one of my classes, and it was like a 10 to 15 minute, just super quick overview, and I kind of was surprised of how many light bulbs I saw going off in my students' uh, minds. And it made me realize that the concept of alienation, even though it's incredibly complex from Marx, can be presented in a really simple way. And it's also a really good way to introduce people into Marxist thought and the way that he thought about uh, what was wrong with capitalist society. I typically do that in class, starting with the labor theory of value. But then I now realize that that's ridiculous because it's boring. And even though it's incredibly, uh, I think, Marx was wicked intelligent, obviously, in his economic analysis. It's not usually the best insertion point, I think, for people. But people do understand that they are miserable under capitalism, and they oftentimes don't understand why. So Marx's theory of alienation gives us that why. So do you have anything to add before we get started?
1: yeah I wonder if they know they're miserable though and 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 I don't even know that the the word miserable is is exactly it maybe like disengaged disenchanted i i mean I do think like the misery is there or unhappiness is there, and we'll talk about it further as we go into into the philosophy and then apply it using real world examples but like the idea of misery is kind of interesting and in how we i I'm thinking more and long along the lines of people that are living in like occupied territories or during the time of like the Holocaust or Native American ethnic cleansing like that's kind of misery. I don't know that we can equate that to what people are experiencing. But maybe we can. Maybe it's just a different kind. I guess that's what we're going to go s- explore right now. It, I am super curious as to how kind of like this lays out um, regarding the philosophy and connectivity, uh, especially to 2019. Because, yeah, we could argue that in the mid-19th century, a, you know, eight-year-old digging through like a factory is probably pretty miserable. That That's true. And even though we're not doing that, like I guess maybe is it a spectrum? Can misery be a spectrum? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, is it relative, I guess? Like who are we to decide? Side, but yeah. yeah I, I mean, is that the same as, you know, 40 to 50 hours a week every day uh, or every day, every week in uh, in a cubicle filling out Excel spreadsheets? Is that the same thing or is it just a different kind of misery? Like, I guess that's – yeah. Anyway, yeah. Let's, let's get going. Let's get going.
0: I think that – yeah, you're right. Like, I don't think that every person understands or maybe they're not even miserable, right? But they definitely don't understand that they have this like probably super high level of misery. Relative to other types of misery, I don't know, but I think that everyone has this inkling that there's something kind of in the back of their mind, like they're not happy in some way. And I think that people oftentimes don't know what the root of that is. Marx would say it's a result of alienation through the capitalist system, which is what we're going to discuss. But I think if we looked at like society wide, Depending on how we wanted to qualify or quantify misery, I mean we can look at all kinds of things like depression rates and suicide rates and like those statistics are astronomical.
1: So unhappy, unfulfilled, slightly less loaded than misery maybe? Yeah. Definitely, and this need to, well, fill the unfillable void, like that's what capitalism is, and that's what many ideologies propose even before capitalism, is that they have the end-all answer, the one-track trajectory to fill that unfillable void you're feeling, but the void is created by societies of hierarchy, stratification, inequity, competition, etc., whether we're talking about the ancient world of city-states or the middle-aged world of the divine right of kings or modern capitalist societies, that lack of satisfaction in people's lives is intentional. And all of these ideologies promote this idea of a one-truth answer to fulfill yourself. The catch is it never works. It's not meant to. It's meant to keep people engaged in labor and consumption. Um, usually to generate surplus for those that are above them. But Nick's going to go further, so uh, let's dig into the philosophy.
0: Uh, Actually, I want to start with a definition of what just alienated means, just so our listeners can understand that if they kind of are foreign to that term. So I just looked it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, and this is what it says. It says, Of a person, or his or her feelings, estranged, excluded, or turned away from a person or thing, experiencing a feeling of estrangement or isolation, Also, an extended use of a period, place, etc., characterized by or inducing such feeling. So, estrangement is key here, which I think is interesting because we're going to be using some quotes from the 1984 manuscripts of Marx, specifically a section called Estrange Labor, which we'll link to in the show notes. Um, So, estrangement here, I think, is a key term. I also thought it was interesting just when I looked in the Oxford English Dictionary. That was the first definition of alienation. And then number two was Karl Marx's definition. And they specifically said alienation, according to Karl Marx, is blah, blah, blah. So that just gives you an idea of how, I guess, pervasive at this point this uh, Marxist concept of alienation is.
1: Yeah, and we talked about this in in prior episodes when we were discussing basically our Stateless Societies course and its its historical materialist kind of like basis – but for those of you that didn't catch any of those episodes, like I think it's important for us to understand that when we're speaking of Karl Marx, the philosopher, we're not necessarily speaking about like communism or socialism, although we will dig into some of that stuff a little bit later. But the fact that, like again, he, the, the, the philosopher as a human being has been denigrated so much in Western capitalist society when writing about socialism and communism is actually not – necessarily his greatest contributions to Western philosophy. We could debate that, and I'm willing to bet there would be socialists or communists that would debate me on that. But no, this ideas of alienation, historical materialism, even looking at uh economic trajectory scientifically, these are things that even, ironically, capitalists use, capitalist economists use some of this Marxist way of looking at the world to generate their ideas. It's Amazing that this is so overlooked, that that's how kind of impactful his lens was in applying, again, materialism to economics and thus later on the political sphere as well.
0: Yeah. In fact, when I introduce Marx in my Introduction to Sociology courses, I pause and tell them, like, forget everything you know about bread lines and the Soviet Union, like everything that you've been indoctrinated with from the Western media – and let's just look at him as a philosopher and as a political economist for just a second. And then I use the concept of historical materialism to introduce right. him to,
1: yeah. He's not Joseph Stalin. He's not Mao. He's not uh, whatever, whoever else we can think of. The Kim family in North Korea. He's not any of these people. He was a philosopher who laid out some ideas. And those ideas, just like in any ideology, were applied the way those followers, those dis- disciples, descendants saw fit. Um, you know, and we, we could apply this to any ideology, how how far it deviates from its original uh, discourse.
0: Yep. Yeah, I think it's important to understand, too, most historians or Marxists uh, point to two different periods in Marx's life where the beginning or the young Marx is a philosopher. And then later on, he transitions to being basically purely a political economist, which most people don't ever they just think of Marx as like the father of communism and being bad. They don't even take time to, I think, think about him as a complex individual person because they just don't know. So it's key to understand. Okay. So according to Marx, human beings living in a capitalist society feel different types of alienation. They feel estranged from various things. And there are four main types. We're going to dissect each four and then talk about the complexities of how they came into being and how his idea for how they can be overcome and then how they relate to modern society. So the first one is alienation from the product of one's labor. So I'm going to read some quotes here. These come from the 19, 19 the 1844 manuscripts. Uh, like I said, we'll link those in the show notes. So he says, quote, the worker can create nothing without nature, without the sensuous external world. It is the material on which his labor is realized, on which it is active, from which, and by means of which it produces. Okay, end quote. So let's just for one second dissect that super short uh, two-sentence little paragraph. Man cannot create anything without nature. I hope none of our listeners feel like that's controversial in any way. It seems simple to me, right? That man does not generate anything without using natural resources to do so. That, I think, is easy. Any problem with that?
1: I have no problem with that. Yeah. No, okay, no, 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 Definitely so. fits my more like circular worldview. Definitely, like, like we are we are dependent upon nature. Even though later ideologies have convinced us through anthropocentric views that we are somehow separate or superior or should be stewards of God, I hate that terminology. No, we are dependent upon. And uh, even though maybe right now it feels like we can control and manipulate and make dams and so on and so forth, or go to space and mine Mars or whatever we plan on doing there, uh, the chickens will come home to roost at some point. Okay,
0: continuing quote, but just as nature provides labor with the means of life, in the sense that labor cannot live without objects on which to operate. On the other hand, it also provides the means of life in the more restricted sense, i.e. the means for physical subsistence of the worker himself. Okay, end quote there. Let's now dissect that little short paragraph. So the worker can create nothing without nature, but also the worker himself cannot be quote unquote created also without nature because nature provides the means of subsistence for the worker himself as a human being. Very clearly we have to ingest food and water and we need shelter, um, etc., So there's two aspects here that Marx is getting at. Uh, In fact, I'll just continue the next paragraph because he goes straight right into it. So, quote, Thus, the more the worker by his labor appropriates the external world, the more he deprives himself of the means of life in two respects. First, in that the sensuous external world more and more ceases to be an object belonging to his labor, to be his labor's means of life. And second, in that it is more and more uh, ceases to be a means of life in the immediate sense means for the physical subsistence of the worker. So he says through labor, the worker actually in two ways has this interesting relationship with nature. The more that he works, the less nature there is to feed his labor. And the more that he works, the less nature there is to feed himself, essentially. So in two ways, he is pillaging nature and uh, basically extracting from that resource and it's negatively impacting him.
1: Specific to growth trajectories, mind you. So he's, he's, Marx is alluding to the idea that at one point perhaps, and maybe I'm inferring too much here, that there was a mutualistic reciprocal relationship that labor or man had with nature and under capitalism. We have lost that, and I would argue it actually dates before capitalism. But at, at any rate, capitalism being the most profound and modern version of exploitation of nature, which ironically also challenges the worker's ability uh, uh, to get what he needs out of nature. At some point, like there's a, there's a, there's a disconnect there, and that's what the alienation is, that we're taking more um, than we're replenishing. And at some point, again, as I just said, that, that, that's going to bite us. That's going to bite us. And he's talking about the individual labor, but he's also – this can be applied allegorically to society, to capitalist society. Well, he's actually going to get to that.
0: That's the one of the latter four types of alienation. Um, also, Marx himself doesn't say that this began in capital, uh, capitalism. He's just – that's what he's analyzing in this manuscript. So he well, has- and-
1: for historical context, like, it's not just about going, like, back to our overly, perhaps, like, romanticized roots as, as, as more simple people, but it's this idea that he is also writing, and it's in, in, during a time where the more moderate back to nature movement was becoming very prominent, especially in Western literature, like the Romanticism movement. Um, and then, of course, the Transcendentalist. All this is actually taking place, and he's privy to this. So it's not just about politics. There is a general movement that people were alienated during the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, and there was a counterculture or a counter movement that was revealing itself in pop culture at the time, which for them was literature. Maybe not, you know, it wasn't YouTube videos, it was literature. It was revealing itself. Now, are they as, like, radical as Karl Marx, these writers that were romantic writers? No, absolutely not. They're not. But, like, that general sentiment is something that he is living, and he's understanding it, and he's now applying his more scientific economic and political way of looking at the world to this general ethos that he's feeling this somewhat resistant nature that he sees especially in England to the rapid industrialization process that is required for capitalism
0: yeah there's actually a lot of work on the relationship between romanticism and Marxism but that's a whole that's beyond the scope of this episode for sure I do want to though read a quote that's higher up in the economic manuscript that speaks to what you were just talking about uh how like Going back to this time in human history when humans weren't alienated, he actually warns us against that in this specific work, even though he does do it uh, at at different times, him and Engels. Engels does it, I think, a little bit more, like in his work uh, on the origins of the family property in the state. But uh, So I'm going to read this paragraph. He says, "...do not let us go back to a fictitious primordial condition, as the political economist does when he tries to explain. Such a primordial condition explains nothing. It merely pushes the question away into a gray, nebulous distance." The economist assumes in the form of a fact of an event which he supposes to deduce, namely the necessary relationship between two things, between, for example, division of labor and exchange. Thus, the, the theologian explains the origin of evil by the fall of man. That is, he assumes as a fact in historical form what has to be explained. We proceed from an actual economic fact. So he's saying, this analysis that I'm putting forth in this manuscript is purely going to exist in the here and now. So, Jared and I both are guilty of this all the time as we point back to, like, this utopic prehistoric man, which I don't think that that's wrong because it makes really, really good examples. But for Mark's case, in this specific instance, he's saying, we're not going to do that. We're going to live right here and right now, which happens to be 1844 when he's writing this manuscript. So, just interesting that he actually warns against doing that for right this second anyways. Uh It's interesting to think about. Okay, continuing that same section, he says, uh, this is a long paragraph, so stick with me. Quote, all these consequences are implied in the statement that the worker is related to the product of labor as as to an alien object. For on this premise, it is clear that the more the worker spins himself, the more powerful becomes the alien world of objects, which he creates over and against himself. The poorer he himself, his inner world becomes, the less belongs to him as his own. It is the same in religion. The more man puts into God, the less he retains in himself. The worker puts his life into the object. But now his life no longer belongs to him but to the object. Hence, the greater this activity, the more the worker lacks objects. Whatever the product of his labor is, he is not. Therefore, the greater this product, the less he is himself. The alienation of the worker in his product means not only that his labor becomes an object, an external existence but that it exists outside him independently as something alien to him and that it becomes a power on its own confronting him. It means that the life which he has conferred on the object confronts him as something hostile and alien, End quote. So the product that men create through their labor confront them as something alien, as something separate and removed from themselves. So just like he talks about, men's relationship, man's relationship with nature, and the fact that nature is the fruit of the labor of man, throughout this process of labor, what men create comes back and basically confronts men as something foreign. What do you think about that?
1: I mean, I think it really applies during his era, just like you talked about like before that paragraph, that he's applying this to his here and now in the 1840s. And yes, I mean, if you happen to be on an assembly line in a factory and at some point we're aware that all of this stuff on our assembly line came from nature somehow, whether it was mining or, or, or logging or whatever it was – We then are just a part of a process to take this original fruits of nature, turn it into something else. We actually don't even get to see the finished product, but I think you're going to get to that part a little bit later. And then all of a sudden, it it feels like something completely foreign. Was this at one point just a, I mean, I, I don't know what it would look like. Was this at one point just a tree with an intrinsic and innate value as a tree? Or was this at one point just a rock or a mineral with an innate and intrinsic value for being a rock? Once it is some sort of finished product, or at least on an assembly line, part of what would become a finished product, we've lost sight of what it used to be. And it is, it is, it is, it's kind of, it's, it separates us from what it used to be. I guess, and, and and there's no better, I guess, idea of alienation than that. Like this finished product, I'm looking at a desk right now with a coffee mug and a book and a microphone and an Apple computer, and all those things in some way bring comfort to us now because we've been highly socialized. But in other ways, if we then put this these things in a forest that would probably be actually discomforting. And I think that's what Marx is like digging at. Like if you, you, you're you walking on a trail and see an Apple computer, a coffee mug, and a microphone there, that would be uncomfortable. And I don't know that man was alienated enough yet to have forgotten that, like we are today.
0: Oh, yeah. I think if we take this concept and apply it today, like we are even so further alienated than people would have been in 1844, right? Industrialization, et cetera. Like you say, we're looking at this desk, and the irony is, there's probably very even little wood that goes into making this desk anymore, but it has a very nice faux wood grain on the top of it to trick us to think that somehow there's nature that has gone into this, and clearly there has, but I'd like to use a student, uh, the example with my students of like a dining room table, and thinking of like, Pre-industrialization, if you needed a dining room table, what did you do? And we go through like what you would have had to do. You literally would have had to go to the woods and get a tree and chop it down and fashion the wood. And you literally probably would have done every step of this on your own. And then you would have put the dining room table in your kitchen and you would have experienced with your family and your neighbors literally eating on that dining room table. The fruits of your labor. Exactly. And we have... Like almost, almost no one today, at least in modern advanced capitalist society, ever goes through that entire process on their own. Though we're going to talk about the process differently in a second, but you never get to see the product, the nature, the manipulation of the natural world into the product that you are experiencing. Like Jared said, I'm sitting in front of my MacBook right now. Like literally millions of people had to go into manufacturing this
1: piece of and resources hearing. and water and even yeah. the most skilled laborers that, that i actually am jealous of because they're way more useful to society than me an actual carpenter or or perhaps a logger or whatever even they like they're still more skilled than us and probably a little bit less alienated than the rest of us but still even the carpenter very rarely is also the logger does that make sense so yep. even we've even specialized a little bit in our highly skilled um positions yeah and division of
0: labor is a huge problem for Marx, which we're actually going to touch on as we get uh, further on Also, think about the fact that Marx was writing in still like an industrial society. And nowadays we exist in whether you want to call it post-industrial or information society or whatever, where some of us don't even produce tangible goods. Like we literally don't even get a thing. So like Jared and I are teachers, right? We don't, we literally cannot tangibly hold the product of our labor. We get to see it sometimes in our students when they do things or have ideas, or we can't hold them. We'd get yeah, that would go really bad, yeah, for sure. (laughs) So most, in fact, most people in advanced capitalist society don't actually create tangible things, right? Even now, we're creating this podcast. There will literally be nothing tangible that comes from this. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It's like mind blowing to think about the fact that we don't actually yeah. make things most of the I us. mean, it,
1: we get, we have the illusion of most of our products, whatever they are, whether it be a, a podcast or a video or whatever in the information an article in the information age, you could see it online. But even those are now, it's so oversaturated mm-hmm. that. It's it's still alienating in a way that, that I have to look at this product on, on the screen and look at how many views or likes or whatever. You know what? I'm actually jumping ahead. Mm-hmm. Let's save that. <laughs> Let's save that.
0: Okay. So laborers are alienated from the product of their labor. That's the first kind. Second, people are alienated from the process of their labor. So they're alienated from the labor itself. Okay. Quote, First, labor is external to the worker, i.e., it does not belong to his intrinsic nature. That in his work, therefore, he does not affirm himself but denies himself, does not feel content but unhappy, does not develop freely his physical and mental energy but mortifies his body and ruins his mind. The worker, therefore, only feels himself outside his work, and in his work feels outside himself. He feels at home when he is not working. And when he is working, he does not feel at home. His labor is therefore not voluntary, but coerced. It is forced labor. It is therefore not the satisfaction of a need. It is merely a means to satisfy needs external to it. Its alien character emerges clearly in the fact that as soon as no physical or other compulsion exists, labor is shunned like the plague. External labor, labor in which man alienates himself, is a labor of self-sacrifice of mortification. Lastly, the external character of labor for the worker appears in the fact that it is not his own, but someone else's, that it does not belong to him, that it belongs, that it, sorry, that it does not belong to him, that in it he belongs not to himself, but to another. Okay, so there's two things there that Marx is saying. First, man is alienated from his labor because his labor does not have anything to do with his intrinsic identity Or his satisfaction of himself. And this can be summed up in modern times uh, no more succinctly than you hate your job. That's it. And you don't feel any kind of satisfaction from your job. It doesn't give you any kind of internal satisfaction to go work at McDonald's or sell Verizon wireless or whatever you do. The second thing that he talks about is labor confronts the worker as something foreign to the worker because it is owned and controlled by the capitalist. And now we're getting into some of the uh, more intricacies of capitalism and political economy. Capitalists are those that buy and control the labor's labor, the worker's labor. So for the laborer, his labor power, the labor itself is owned and controlled by someone else. So it's not even his which is the second thing that Marx is talking about. Um, wage labor, this is Marx again, quote, wage labor reduces not only his product, but also his labor into a commodity that is controlled by another person, end quote. So what are your thoughts on that?
1: The part one is interesting to me because we have the privilege uh, and good fortune of, of doing a job that we really love. We, we get to teach um, and and have a bunch of amazing students and it's it's pretty awesome. And for the most part, we have a pretty good... Um we're allowed a lot of academic freedom in what we teach and how we approach it and and that's great. But it's the part two that I think that that strikes most uh when I think about this. Cause it, it's it'd be super easy for me to use the cliche fast food worker or retail worker example here, but I think that's almost too easy. So I want to even think about it in terms of people that really enjoy their job, like myself or perhaps a, a professional baseball player or something like that, that 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 really get to love. What they do, it's that second part still that is alienating, that the final finished good, whatever that good is, is still not wholly my own, and that my labor, because I am being compensated piecemeal via wages, is still not wholly my own. Moreover, I have stakeholders that are still somewhat dictating down to me... What the fruits of my labor actually really mean and how they apply not only to internally to myself but externally to society as well. So as good as my job is and as, as much as I enjoy the university, um, there are still parts of it that are that are alienating. There, I'm not completely free, at least in terms of labor is concerned, into how my labor comes about and how and what my labor means both internally and externally. I don't know that I'm actually drawing this out the way I want to. Um, I mean,
0: you just come- I want to. I mean you and I just had a conversation before we started recording about how miserable grading is and how we try to minimize it in all of our courses as much as absolutely possible. But we are not free enough to be able to completely eliminate it. That's a good
1: it. point. So content, we are free to teach more or less what we want, although that's debatable on some topics. But that, that, that's, a, that's a conversation for another day. But yeah, grading is a super good example where – that is something I fundamentally don't necessarily agree with. Like, I don't think assessment, and assessment is a requirement in a capitalist society that seeks to measure and value everything and then have these values compete with each other. That's a perfect example. Yeah, like this this constant need to assess. And then for the students themselves, my, they, they either need to know how they can improve so that they can be more progressive and, of course, get the jobs they want, and they want that nice pat on the back. I mean, I've brought it up before in classrooms. What if there were no papers, no grading, and it was just up to you? to come here and engage in discourse? Because that's what we like is the discussion, right? The back and forth with students. And there were no papers. What would your vested stake be? Well, because they're socialized in a capitalist system, they say they would like that. But at some point, there would be students that would kind of get pissed off that they're not getting the attaboys every once in a while of an A on a paper or that they're not being able to gauge what they're learning or accomplishing against their peers. Like that's something that is kind of bred into us. and, And I think that's a super good example. Um and and I'd probably be guilty of it myself. At some point I'd be like, Well, like I I I like the idea that I don't have to grade papers anymore, but how am I supposed to say that John Doe over there in the corner and Jane Doe over there in the corner, like how do I gauge like how they're doing in the class? What are what are they learning? Were they absorbing anything or are they just sitting there and uh tindering while I'm talking? I don't like that Yeah, I guess that's part of the alienation
0: he's talking about. Also think about like That's just one example of us as teachers, but even think about, like, the professional athlete that Jared just brought up. I guarantee you that there are times, because their labor is owned by someone else, that they feel alienated. And it may be, like, it's ridiculous for us to try to imagine, like, they have everything they could possibly want and et cetera. Like, how could they possibly not be happy? But when the coach is at, you get the text from the coach and you
1: have to be on the team plane at 6 a.m., I guarantee you that they're not happy about that. And those, the, everything they want is a loaded term. I'm sorry, but the fancy car, the nice house, or the cool watch, or whatever it is, like these, that's part of the capitalist capitalism's unfillable void. And, and our listeners are well aware of that, that every time you get one of those, it's like a drug. It's never enough. You're going to need the next best. And that's part of the general dissatisfaction and alienation of capitalism as a consumer. We're talking about producers right now we're talking about labor but the 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 consumption the idea that we can cure all your ills our one truth is buy shit it will make you happy until the next new shit comes out and then you're unhappy might not be unhappiness to where you're like you know wallowing in a corner crying but it is a general dissatisfaction that will make you want to work harder so that you can get the next what's next what's next what's on to the next one as jay-z said Actually, a really good example that I just thought of, I watched an interview with Richard Sherman a
0: a while ago, I don't know, years ago, I'm assuming. But he talks about uh, the aspects of the NFL and how they basically don't care at all about their players. And he specifically has a long interview where he talks about the dynamics of the games, like the Monday night game and the Thursday night game and the teams that have to go on Sunday night and then Thursday night and how it's so detrimental to the health and the physical bodies of the players and their mental health and et cetera. The NFL doesn't care. It's all about profits. So the NFL players' labor is still owned by that organization.
1: Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, they they like to throw out the illusion that they care by changing some of the rules. I I don't watch the football that much anymore. Um, but changing some of the rules regarding how you can hit and what you can hit and what helmet you can wear and so on and so forth. But it it's illusory, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it is. So yeah, anyway, it's, yeah. It's okay.
0: Yeah, we keep playing football for a really long time for some yeah. strange reason. I don't know why. Okay. So we've talked about the fact that the person uh, in capitalism is alienated from the product of their labor and the process of their labor. The third type of alienation for Marx is alienation from one's species being. Um, I'm not actually going to even go into uh, defining that term. Uh, you can look that up or you can read the uh, works that we're going to cite in the uh, show notes. Um, just because the history of that term is incredibly complex, from Hegel to Fauerbach—to we're not going to do that. Uh, so, quote, in estranging man from one nature and to himself, his own active functions, his life, activity, estranged labor, estranges the species from man. It changes for him the life of the species into a means of individual life. First, it estranges the life of the species and individual life. And secondly, it makes individual life in its abstract form the purposes of the life of the species. Likewise, likewise in its abstract and estranged form. Essentially, man is a so, oh, sorry, end quote. That's the end of his paragraph. The next is me. Essentially, man is a social being and his life, his consciousness, specifically according to Marx, is a result of the social production of the means of life. So, man is a social being. And according to Marx, man gets his consciousness, his life, from that uh, social activity and from interacting with nature, with other men, uh, to create the things that they need to survive. Through the division of labor and the appropriation of the workers' labor by capitalists, man has become alienated from even himself because he no longer gets to take part in the social aspects of human life. Production is no longer a social activity. It has now been individualized through the division of labor.
1: What do you think about that? I think of... Three interesting philosophers of the 20th century who all used Marxist alienation theory to frame their their work. We've probably talked in prior episodes about One Dimensional Man by, by Herbert Marcuse. We may or may not have talked about uh, Theodore Kaczynski's On Industrial Society and its Future and what he calls this alienation from the power process. Um, and uh, we haven't done an episode on them yet, but we're going to because they're arguably some of my favorite people uh, to study, talk about, and and engage with uh, the Zapatistas. So Subcomandante and Sergente Marcos also kind of speaks to this in some of his work, like the Fourth World War has has begun and what that means on a social level. Rewinding to the more individual level, I think that's 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 important for us to understand is that this this alienation is not accidental. And I don't know that Marx really drew it out in that quote, although he does in 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 later works of his, that this alienation is intentional. It's it's about getting the individual to disengage with those natural um, let's just call them wants or desires or needs, and to engage in these more artificial ones. Um and and, and to cite Kaczynski here, he would call these surrogate activities. Um and these surrogate activities are essentially um They're meant to, in a way, kind of sate the individual, but because they're not the actual relationship that Nick was talking about, or the actual product that he was talking about in a prior quote, or the actual natural thing that we want to do, they're mere surrogates. They're never going to fully be satisfying. And somewhere in our deep subconscious, or maybe it's in our consciousness, we know that. And that's where part of that alienation stems from.
0: Man, I think you need to be careful about uh, relating Kaczynski too much to Marxism, or you're going to need to be checking your mail a little more carefully. You're lucky he's behind bars. I was actually just reading Kaczynski before we started this, the... series of letters between Derek Jensen and him which were super interesting.
1: I've never read those letters but I mean it's super yeah I mean Kaczynski would probably not call himself like that but like it's funny that his his Mm -hmm. theories that's what I was talking about when I say like at the beginning of this episode Marx's ideas are not about socialism and communism I mean yes some of them clearly are but these other ideas are morally just commentary on the problems with the capitalist system of which also people like Kaczynski who go right rather than left to challenge the system also still use as a framework whether they understand that or not historical materialism is what informs the industrial society and its future it does
0: yeah I mean Marxism to use like the Foucault lens, right? Marxism is a dominant discourse that informs so many other discourses.
1: Just like I'm not necessarily a true, true believer in everything that a Locke or Rousseau or an Adam Smith had to say, I would be completely remiss to not admit that the way they framed the world for us, because I've been socialized in the world that has come after them, has informed some of the way I think about it.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's just ironic that like the most anti-communist and anti-Marxist have no choice but to view the world from a Marxist lens. Through historical materialism, et cetera, other ideas that Marx had that they have no idea about because they've never studied it. Yeah. Because they just know he's a communist. They, they read the like, manifesto yeah, and that was enough for them. They didn't even read that, let's be honest. It. <laughs> well, it's funny because I use the manifesto in my classes, in my intro classes when we talk about communism, socialism, et cetera. That's basically the only thing I make them read because it's digestible. And then we just do the other complex stuff in class. But literally every single time I've done this, probably 50 times in my career now, they come to class after they've read it and they're like, I don't understand, like, this is so innocent, and there's nothing about bread lines or gulags or anything in here, and I'm like, I know, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, no one reads it. Okay, so alienation from the product of one's labor, alienation from the process of one's labor, um, alienation from man's species being, and the final one for Marx is alienation from others, so from other, man, other men. Um, although the alienation of man as species being, that is the social livelihood of man uh, he also becomes alienated from all other members of his species. This again takes place to the division of labor and the appropriation of the workers' labor by the capitalists. So as labor ceases to be a social process and as uh, men, as laborers cease to directly interact with nature along with other men, they also become alienated from other men. Because where life is supposed to be, according to Marx, this social process, and that's what results in our livelihood and our consciousness and man being what we would define as man, uh, through that division of labor, the appropriation of the workers' labor by the capitalists, man also becomes alienated from other men. So, what do you think about that?
1: Agreed. I mean, I don't, yeah, I mean, agreed. Like, and, and, what this actually kind of goes back to is now we'll cite ourselves here actually our own theory uh, of the social pyramid Um, and uh, you guys can find that on our, our, our YouTube channel Uh, it's you know whatever 15 minutes of, of discussing and this goes all the way back to the ancient world of the construction of the social pyramid and it this isn't unique to capitalism in this case although capitalism just happens to be the most current best manifestation of exploitation of this but it goes back to this idea of divided labor like and 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 division of labor leads to these other forms of alienation in terms of basically the divide and rule strategy of the hierarchy itself and it's not like there's some sort of like in 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 that example that we use in our in our our pyramid or our, our peasant video uh example there are clear architects or storytellers or enforcers that are kind of making this happen in the ancient world it was a little bit simpler time but in the modern world there is no illuminati there is no it's the system itself and I think that's what Marx is talking about. It's, this, it's, it's so ingrained at this point. We're thousands of years into this process, and capitalism, at least now centuries into this process, um, that it is just it's systemic. Like we're so socialized into it into it that we oftentimes do it ourselves and don't realize it's happening. This this alienation from each other, and it is this alienation because of our need to exert our individuality, um, our arete, whatever, and compete with each other for engagement with our power process or the unfillable void of material goods or the attaboy slap on the back for the good grades whatever it is this is what leads to that alienation um so yeah
0: you just stole the thunder of like the next 20 minutes that i was about to talk about right? oh That's shit fine. sorry so the next thing i'm going to talk about is how did this alienation come into being and it's interesting because marx transitions the way that he discusses this throughout his body of work And in the beginning, it's as a philosopher, and in the latter part of his uh, work, it is as a political economist. So it gives us two different lenses, which is uh, really interesting. So in the beginning, both of time and of Marx's work, he refers to what we could call anthropological man, right? Like this prehistoric man, that like this idealized man that lived prehistory, right? So we're making a generalization here. He says that back then, man imposed this alienation upon himself through the division of labor because men were struggling to lit men and women. By the way, I just want to caveat. We keep saying man because Marx says man uh, throughout, but clearly we're talking about human beings. I feel like I have to apologize that for uh, every time. You have to
1: apologize for a 19th century dude. Yeah, I know. Uh,
0: Well, and we're guilty of it because I keep saying it, but I would like to say humans. But I'm so into the Marxist discourse at this point that it's hard for me to shift. Anyways, okay. Uh, where was I? That men used the division of labor to become more productive so that they didn't have to struggle to survive as much. So they brought it upon themselves in the beginning. Then, later on, both in time and in Marx's work, That division of labor becomes imposed upon men by the capitalists. So like Jared was just talking about this social pyramid and how it's the capitalists that are imposing the hierarchy and this social arrangement on everyone else. In the beginning, it wasn't that way. In the beginning, everyone was for the division of labor because it helped them to survive and not they didn't have such a precarious existence, uh, literally just trying to survive on a daily basis. However, then the system itself becomes so powerful and the capitalists themselves become so powerful that they are externally imposing it upon uh the workers themselves uh however i do want to then talk about jared's next point of like there's no illuminati now in modern society the system itself is so powerful that it basically imprisons both the capitalists and the laborers and they, neither one of them basically have any choice but to do what they do uh so go ahead
1: well and my critique is 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 you being more of the Marxist expert than, than me regarding his philosophy is I, I do feel like he skipped a lot of steps along the way probably because they weren't necessary for him to make his argument for the 19th century o- audience but like we, again we have an entire like series on this uh, and again the short version would be the social pyramid video but essentially it didn't just like happen overnight right like and it's not just capitalism like there are ideologies that actually lead to capitalism that guide us there right like the first being um, patriarchy as an original ideology that, be, that divides us just a little bit and then from patriarchy we get institutions like marriage and control over reproductive rights and of course control over surplus and then we get the birth of like uh, imperial and then we get the birth of monotheism, and then which equates to like the idea of one truth and starts training our brains to look for one answer to everything, just like capitalism does. And then we get the ideas of divine rights and colonialism and racism and all these other ideologies that eventually feed into what capitalism is. So capitalism doesn't just—it is not a 100% new discourse that just comes around in the 16th, 17th, 18th century and, and is born then— it is founded upon prior ideologies that had already trained humans in certain ways capitalism just happens to be the current hegemon it just happens to be the current version of the most exploitative basically hierarchy that we've seen yet it doesn't mean it might it might not even be the last which is kind of the scary part i don't know what the last might be what some sort of neo post-capitalism superstructure might be but it or it could get better which is what we hope for obviously But it could also get worse. We could accelerate this. It's just interesting. And like I said, I just want to caveat that, that I do feel like Marx oversimplifies that process a little bit. Well, so I would argue with you that he doesn't. Like he has a whole body. In that of quote, he does. He okay. might have that other things. That wasn't a quote.
0: That was me. Oh,
1: okay. No, that wasn't a quote. Yeah, oh, okay. That was just me talking. All right. Well, then if he has an entire like <laughs> section breaking down how we got No, it, not in this manuscript, but like other places. in Other places work. he yeah. does things that I have not read. That's yeah. why I'm relying on you to, to yeah. fill me in.
0: In fact, okay. if you want a really good one that's easily digestible, that is so often overlooked, and I don't know why, Engels writes, uh, his work is titled The Origin of the Family, Private Property in the State. Uh, he writes that in 1884. Uh, it's not that long, it's easily digestible, and he actually goes through that basic entire history of uh, that process, and it's super good. Uh, like I said, I don't know, it's overlooked often in like the work of Marx and Engels, but it's it's in my opinion, it's one of the best ones to kind of introduce people to this concept. So we'll link that in the show notes too. Um, yeah, so in this manuscript, he doesn't tackle that, but he does uh, elsewhere for sure. So I'm going to go now into thinking about why alienation continues today. So now I'm going to read... A quote from a Marxist, uh, I guess, I don't know what he is, I don't know if he's a political philosopher or what he is, but uh, by the name of Goldner, and this comes from his book, it's called The Two Marxisms, when he analyzes the contradictions and the nuances between the philosophical Marx and the uh, political economist Marx. And so this is a quote from him, a quote, Marx then has several accountings for the persistence of alienation. One centers on the class division in society, so that this persistence is due in part to the domination of the ruling class, to its interest in preserving its privileges and its control over uh, communication media, so that its ideas dominate even the consciousness of those who are most alienated. A second answer is that both are commonly dependent on and constrained by the social system within each has his social position and identity. A third consideration relates to the fact that as historically received from the past, society and culture are at first the unreflected upon medium of existence and do not usually come into focus as either problematic or potentially changeable. End quote. Okay, so let me break that down in like real words because he says there's three basic reasons. One centers on the class division in society which is that the elite now have a vested interest in maintaining uh, their position at the top and controlling society, controlling things like the economy and the communication processes and things like that, and that's why it continues. That's the one I think that most people latch onto, and in fact, uh, Jared and I are guilty of this as well when we're talking about this in the classroom and stuff. This is the one that we most commonly
1: discuss, especially in our ideology class and things like that. So, But it is real. It's not that it's not real, and then we're not about to go, but... This is real, like control over the production of knowledge, control over material resources. Like these are things. They still exist. They are things. So the first one is basically the elite are intentionally through their agency and their
0: power controlling and manipulating society to make sure the system doesn't change so they can preserve their position at the top. Like Jared said, that for sure is real. I'm not, I wasn't about to say, but yeah, that is definitely real. Uh, I do think the other two get overlooked though in Marxist thought. So he says the second is both the capitalist and the worker both have a very defined social position and an identity within that position and they are constrained by that position in society. So what do you think about that one?
1: Yes. I mean, I think yes, like I I kind of like I I the identity attached to this social status is something that is uh real and it dates back again even pre-capitalism for sure 100% the identity and the limitations on what that means, especially as I want to kind of focus more on the worker are important that they don't necessarily see the alienation or fee- as alienation. They don't even see the exploitation or subjugation or oppression or injustice because their identity is kind of tied to that as like, again, this, this like labor and, and the modern day example I really feel like I have to cite are <sighs> Poor white people. I, I just, there, there, there's an identity wrapped up in this idea of hard work and pickup trucks, and maybe I'm being stereotypical, but at this point, I just don't care. And the fact that their identity leads them to somehow continue, in some cases, to voice or vote or whatever against their own economic interest is, like, one of the best examples that I can kind of point to. Now, we have other episodes in the Actual Myth of America series that Nick gives us, especially in the Invention of Whiteness series, as to, like, how that, like, came about specific to the United States. But it's not just a United States phenomenon. That's, that's I guess, the point is... How these people continue to somehow have an identity wrapped up in certain social views that are counterintuitive to their economic ones, and they're not understanding that the alienation they're feeling, you can't separate those two things, and they've tried. And their identity is attached to it the funny part is then the capitalists understand this about this demographic and that's what you're also talking about and their identity is wrapped up in catering to this voting block or this base and so again they're then perpetuating this alienation themselves so here's the funny part if we refer back to my pyramid theory of like how society is stratified what what marx is saying what nick i think also agrees with is that the storytellers themselves don't even realize they're the storytellers anymore. Like, they're not just constructing a story to manipulate the masses. They, too, now fully believe the story. They believe their identity is wrapped in that story.
0: I was actually—this is probably going to lead to a whole other conversation, but we can put a pin in it for now. I was actually reading a book on ideology before uh, you got here this morning, and he was talking about how even the intelligentsia, the storytellers in your version of the pyramid— also have a vested interest in making sure that information is associated with a certain amount of power because that secures their position in society. So even they aren't neutral and don't have the interests of everyone in mind. They have a very specific interest to maintain their role, which is kind of interesting to think about. Um, Okay, I want to reword this, though, a little bit differently uh, because I think there's a few ways of viewing this one before we move on to the third thing. Just logically, like logistically, both two classes – can't do anything uh, other than what they can do as that class because logistically and economically, if a capitalist stops being a capitalist, meaning they stop trying to purchase labor at the lowest cost, they instantly cease being a capitalist. They will instantly be outcompeted by the other capitalists and they will find themselves being a worker. And on the flip side, if a worker stops functioning like a worker and somehow starts purchasing
1: labor on the market they instantly cease being a worker and are immediately a capitalist, and their identity is wrapped in it. I mean, again, another super cliche example, but I think an apt one is those that, like the lottery winners, that all end up bankrupt within like a couple of years. Like they, they just. Their identity is not wrapped up in having this much capital or this much to invest, and they don't necessarily they've not been trained or understand on how to use it. And so this is why they end up remaining, even though materially it looks like they're in a different class, mentally their identity never changed.
0: Which and is why like yeah. taking this to a whole different direction, which is like why for the devout Marxist, liberalism is such a problem, because it doesn't actually address the problem. Yeah, right. You're not jumping the tracks, so to speak. You're just still operating within the capitalist. You're discourse. applying band-aids to, to broken bones. Yeah. Okay. But that could be a whole other like series of podcasts, but we'll skip that for now. So the third thing he says is, uh, and this work uh, by Goldner, which I'll link to this chapter from this book, actually does a lot of work here. And it's actually super interesting. The fact that uh, this is basically the role of tradition that... Humans now are not born into like this blank slate society that they get to create. They're born into this capitalist machine that, as Jared said, has been functioning for centuries. And so basically, they have very, very little power to change the machine. So every single one of people that have been born in the past few centuries have adopted this system. And so one of the reasons that alienation continues is because people just insert themselves or are inserted into the system and don't ever take the time to critically reflect on it and to decide whether or not the system is fair and just or makes them happy or fulfills their needs as they should be met, uh, fulfilled
1: and so on. Nobody is born wanting to work 30 years for Raytheon or Chase Manhattan or Coles or McDonald's or whatever to pay Wells Fargo for a place to live. Nobody's born wanting to do that like no no child comes out and that's i i hope i can do that i hope i can again fill out these excel spreadsheets and attend meetings every friday and if i'm lucky they'll let me wait friday is hawaiian shirt day like i love office space anyway like nobody's born wanting to do those things that is not a natural thing that humans want to do but that's the socialization process the minute that kid is at the dinner table and whining too much and is set in front of the ipad for just a second socialization is taking place and it's not even just then. The, the, the parents are socialized. The, the the kid is receiving all kinds of like I can't think of the word information but like whatever it is like even in the womb. Like this, this child is being fully 100% socialized from the get-go in this society and it's not just capitalism centuries. Like I said capitalism is drawing upon rituals and controls over production of knowledge that are thousands of years old from prior ideologies. Which is why it's so powerful. Yeah.
0: Yeah so this is how gener- generationally this continues over time, both capitalism and the alienation that uh, is natural within it, because the system itself has been going on for so long now that people don't even take the time to critically engage, uh, to think about whether or not this era that they're living in, this economic mode of production, the history, et cetera, is problematic and should be adjusted. Part of the system is making
1: sure that people don't have time to do that kind of reflection. And to exhaust them or alienate them to the point that the only way they can find relief is finding solace within the system. So going home at night and playing a video game or candy crushing or Netflix and chilling or watching the latest piece of garbage that Hulu has come out with, whatever it is, like that's, and I'm guilty of it. So like I'm speaking to myself here that at the end of the day, I don't have time. I I no longer have the energy to like fully full-blown reflect, plan something else out. I'm exhausted and instantly on comes Netflix and I'm watching whatever, something stupid, whatever it might be. Yeah, exactly.
0: And I mean, that's honestly part of the reason why we started this podcast is so we can take the time ourselves to critically reflect on these types of things and perhaps our audience uh, through us Uh, blathering into this microphone, will also critically reflect on their history, their ideologies, the economic mode of production in which we exist, uh, etc. Okay, shifting gears now, that's kind of why alienation continues. How do we overcome it from the Marxist perspective? The first one is very interesting, and most people would never associate with Marx, uh, but the first one is... We must have a massive increase in productive capacity. This one's a little counterintuitive uh, for those of you that may not know about Marx. So I'm going to read a quote, a paragraph from Goldner from his work, uh, The Two Marxisms, that we'll link to, and then we'll digest. So he says, The first premise of the elimination of alienation, says Marx, is a great increase in productive power. Without this, men will continue struggling for privileged access to scarce goods will institute systems of class domination with resultant alienation of the dominated class, but with increased productivity, men need no longer struggle against and dominate one another and impose an alienation on the defeated. Logically, then, the first task in removing alienation is to remove the cause of class domination, scarcity, by increasing productivity, quote. So basically, for Marx, alienation is a product of class-based society, And class-based society is a result of the competition over scarce resources in which the capitalists have, quote-unquote, won control over those resources and thus control over society. Therefore, the first step in creating the material circumstances in which alienation could be eliminated uh, is to uh, have more production because that would eliminate the need for competition over scarce resources. My question to you is, do we now live in a post-scarcity world?
1: we could I mean yes materially yes how it's distrib- distributed is the other issue and I would say we we achieved that long before right now I mean we in some ways we did it problematically I don't know that we should be you know spraying children with DDT or, or, or whatever but like yeah, we the cobalt we,
0: in my phone and yeah
1: yeah and that's the idea is do we need what do we need and what do we want like we would have to probably have long hard conversations about the difference between those but if we go up Maslow's hierarchy yes we are Definitely post scarcity. In fact, in fact, our overproduction is leading to scarcity of, of of two particular things that that we actually do need: clean water and oxygen. That's a problem. So we're actually creating more scarcity on on those two things. But yes, to simplify my answer, we make more than enough food at this point as a globe. Right, we we just don't distribute it. We just don't distribute it. We yeah, have okay. more than enough shelter for people. There shouldn't be. There's no such thing. There should be no such thing as homelessness. There are shelters all over, littered all over this 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 po' dunk little town we live in, um, that are just they're, they're just vacant. I I need to sell these. I need to hold on to these. In fact, some people don't even want to sell them because they are just they're just sitting there vacant. Especially when I'm thinking of downtown properties and they're just accruing value and value and value and they don't actually want them occupied. They they just want the value of them sitting there vacant. While people are sleeping in the park like it's yes we have more than enough yeah this gets incredibly
0: complex when i think of the global like take a global perspective like like jared said if we just talk about the basics of maslow's hierarchy do we have enough food water and shelter for every person on earth if we really wanted to without a doubt could everyone have a MacBook or an iPhone? Not without having some very problematic, probably production I'm going not sure, on. man.
1: You've been to the recycling joint over there off of, uh, Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, they're just, I've, I just, people are just pulling up like loads of, of old laptops and iPads and other electronics. We have to figure out how
0: to produce them without exploiting people, which we haven't been able to do clearly at this point, but yeah. Uh, well, so that's a problem. This is how we go get into conversations about luxury communism, etc., right? Uh, which, interestingly can't happen unless you're first willing to have the conversation of how we produce all of those things without uh, exploiting people in the quote-unquote global South uh, which I have yet to see a good analysis of uh, not that it's impossible I just we have to have that conversation first so that's kind of the first thing that has to happen we have to have enough productive capacity globally for there not to be uh, for us to overcome scarcity so there'll be no more competition there the next one basically is is either an increase or a qualitative change in sort of social consciousness. Essentially, the workers must become critical of their social conditions, the history of their social conditions, and the means with which to escape their conditions. So the workers basically have to think critically about the mode of production in which they find themselves and why that has come into being and how and how it's problematic and uh, so on. In fact, one of the first steps would be understanding how they are alienated in the capitalist
1: mode of production. So what do you think about that? I don't think it's good enough anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't. Um, We already saw the workers become conscious of their plight at the turn of the 20th century with the mass labor movements that lasted through about the mid-20th century and won us so many at least individual rights. Like They didn't overthrow the system. But as we've talked about on prior episodes, thanks for like, thank a labor union for your weekend or for your 40 hour work week or your health standards or things along those lines. Unions were doing those work and people were conscious of their part in the process. Uh, Nick does an excellent job of teaching. Wait, wait, shoot, we have an episode on this regarding the Spanish anarchists, uh, the anarcho syndicalists. Uh, in- now we never did an episode. We on never that. did an episode. Then nah. there we go. I think <laughs> we need to do one. But regardless, like, People have been conscious, and I think the late twentieth century, especially in the Western world, which is the most problematic part of the world regarding the uh, proliferation of capitalism, the post twentieth century, post World War II, specifically, both both those wars, hegemon capitalism has done such a good job of absorbing this resistance, this consciousness and then like kind of consuming it and sitting on it and letting its fluids do its thing and then regurgitating it as like something else that makes people feel like they're conscious and accomplishing something when they're really not. It's tied a little bit to Nick, he can probably dig into this a little bit further if he wants to. Narcotizing dysfunction, that's part of it. Like there's a whole bunch of other like sociological um and psychological facets of what capitalism does to any form of resistance. It's I I've used this quote all the time. At one point, like hip hop is my my favorite genre of of really anything. Um at one point was resistance music, and it, I know it didn't necessarily start that way, but it, it's, most, its peak was as resistance music, and now somehow I can turn on the radio and it's being used to sell Geico insurance. Like how did that happen, right? Like capitalism is so good at taking these things, eating them, digesting them, and then again spitting them out as like something that ends up making you feel like you're doing something or are aware of something but really just still partaking in the system.
0: Yeah, I mean, as you guys can tell, this is one of the aspects of Marxism on which Jared and I are both hugely uh, pessimistic, I think. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the resolution is there. Clearly, there needs to be an increase in consciousness. Uh, People need to be aware of alienation and how the capitalist system uh, is alienating. But I'm not sure if that's enough, like Jared says, although the Marxists would argue – it has to be all things, right? It has to be a change in the economic circumstances and in the consciousness of the worker, etc., which I don't disagree with that. I do think it has to be all things. I'm just not sure uh, the role of the consciousness of the worker, how much that even applies anymore to now our modern, advanced, post industrial society. I'm not sure. So we'll leave that one well, for now. Well, and it makes
1: it impossible. I mean, even thinking about the various activist movements or protest movements that we've been involved in, well, they have to be attached to some sort of like social media now to get any sort of coverage or to gain followers. And then those followers end up being clicktivists because if they feel like they're watching it, they're doing enough or that they're signing a petition or whatever it has to be. And then, you, of course, you need to purchase the equipment necessary to disseminate this information to people. And then, of course, by by, by, by the time it's all said and done, all you've end up doing is holding a protest in a park somewhere and yes, you went to all this work and all of this time, but nothing's really changed because the system's already been set up to absorb that. It's absorbed. Cool. Yell. Yell on Instagram. The funny thing is
0: not even is it absorbed. That's the first step. It's also commodified. Then yeah. you buy the t-shirt and the
1: I mean, Instagram's everyone's favorite example, the last mm-hmm. thing Che Guevara, the most famous revolutionary of the 20th century would want is his image on a t-shirt to be sold on eBay.
0: Mm-hmm. And yet we do it. Yeah. That's a whole other conversation yeah okay the last step which should be no surprise for anyone that knows anything about Marx is revolution. Uh, once the economic conditions are ripe and the workers maintain or obtain a level of consciousness, uh, the next step is for them to gain control over the means of production and use that control to specifically implement non-alienating uh, a non-alienating mode of production, which is what for Marx
1: the non-alienating mm-hmm. mode of production.
0: Socialism, right? I mean... That's what it is.
1: It is... It, it removes the alienation that he talks about regarding the natural processes in theory it removes the alienation from your fellow man as you're all in this together and those two things lead to less alienation from yourself right this individual that you are part of this product of labor and even if it even if factories still exist and you're only a man on the the assembly line or a woman on the assembly line and you don't see the end product you have this feeling you have this knowing that when you go buy the or you don't even have to go buy you get this finished product that you do Did this. This was by your hands, by your faculties. That's you. And that's like the idea. Although I guess we probably, I should go back and caveat
0: using the orthodox Marxist terms, the higher stage of communism, because now socialism is something completely different. But we probably need an episode on that whole thing, those just those terms in general. But right. the higher stage of communism eventually would be the end of alienation. The lower stage of communism, not so much. But like I said, that's a whole other episode if we really want to go there, uh, which maybe we will in the new, near future, because I think that's super important. Concepts like vulgar socialism and things like that, that people are surprisingly unaware of um all right so those are marx's four types of alienation i do though just want to have a conversation about when i talk to students and just other people about this like literally people come to me and they're like yeah i just don't know like i'm just not happy or like i don't know where the meaning is in my life and i and i then when i tell them this as if like i'm some kind of marxist like psychotherapist i don't know why they're coming to me but like whatever if I give them the Marxist answer of like, yeah, that's fully designed by the capitalist mode of production, you're alienated and this is why you're alienated. For some reason, like that's the light bulb that they realize it's intentional that you feel this way underneath the system of capitalism. I mean, it's, it's intentional. Not that the capitalists sat around in the very beginning of time and were like, how can we alienate everyone as much as possible and then profit from that alienation? But it, that it, it exists. That's how we exist today.
1: Yeah, their moral bankruptcy was not pre-planned. At least in this regard, regarding alienation, their moral bankruptcy uh, and, and ethical issues were definitely planned in regards to their proliferation of free labor during that era. No coincidence that capitalism is born during the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, no coincidence that capitalism is born during the ethnic cleansing campaigns against indigenous people in the Americas, in sub-Saharan Africa, in Southeast Asia, and of course in the uh, South Pacific, in Australia, New Zealand, and places like that. Those things coincide, capitalism being that rationale. But regarding this specific topic, alienation of the worker in the capitalist society, not the quote-unquote outsiders um, or the slave labor or whatever – I don't know that that was fully pre-planned. Um, there were definitely social commentators. This is where we get Herbert Spencer's idea of social Darwinism for sure, that the capitalists, the eventual – he he's actually – he comes up with this before, but uh, I'll cite these later. These later venture capitalists, the Rockefellers and the Goulds and the – yeah, Jay Gould and the J.P. Morgans and the Carnegies and so on and so forth. These guys, these that this is just social Darwinism, and their laborers that that dare question, uh, you know, how they're being treated or how they're being paid or how or their hours. That's just because they are not the cream of the crop, right? Like that's the idea. So yes. As time progressed in capitalism, that's how it happened. But to – and I'm not a fan of his – but to sit here and try and denigrate like an Adam Smith or one of these earlier thinkers like saying, man, he really wasn't – I don't know that that's the case. I don't know that this was his idea, this idea of alienation over the workers.
0: Well, the funny thing is like of all the people in history that have been used on one side of the debate about capitalism, Adam Smith is probably the most – Misunderstood.
1: I don't know if we'll ever take the time to do a podcast on that. But The Wealth of Nations is yeah. super long and super boring. But yes, what excerpts we've both read do not uh, the irony here is modern day capitalism does not follow anything that not he really all. was interested in. That's the that's the first Key right there. And then the second key is um, he's so often misunderstood by the capitalists who like champion him. Even a- a- Ayn Rand, their other like whatever, uh, oh God, I, I, even saying the name is like wow, like this is a person that people like subscribe to. But even, even those interpretations, uh, because Atlas Shrugged is apparently a little bit easier to read than, than Wealth of Nations, even that kind of stuff. Is, not, I don't even know,
0: is it? It's, they're probably both about the same length. Atlas Shrugged is like...
1: But at least longest. it's a story, I suppose, yeah. and that's why people like get into it. And there's always the, the movie versions and mm-hmm. so on and so forth that people can digest super easily. But regardless, even even her interpretation of like these ideas, these, these capitalist competitive ideas, they're so warped. Yeah. They're warped. Got to reverse to admit that I have not read all of
0: uh, Wealth of Nations, but I have read all of uh, Atlas Shrugged. I've
1: not read all of either, uh, but... But yeah, Wealth of Nations because it's so big and Atlas Shrugged because I, it's, you know, you big it's, and, it's yeah, toilet it's paper. Uh, yeah. yeah, anyway. Okay, so
0: I want to challenge our listeners basically over the next few weeks or months or whatever to think about how Marx's concept of alienation under capitalism relates to the way that you feel on a regular basis. Uh, just think about like, when you have road rage in your car when you're driving home from work or when you have this unquenchable desire for the latest video game or the latest shoes or a fancy watch or all when you are using some kind of narcotics to numb yourself to the world whether that's coffee
1: or heroin or cocaine, or marijuana, or shrooms, or whatever. And Nick's being diverse there because all of those count. If you need to take X amount of drugs, and all of those are drugs, to, Nicotine get, to, is, to, to yeah. sugar, to even get through the day, you're not living a healthy life. And you're not living in a healthy system. And Marx would
0: argue, yeah, I something like... I like to say, if Marx were alive today, but like, he would live for three seconds and his mind would explode. Right. For just how I ridiculous mean, our society is. Yeah, has the become. drug,
1: the drug thing's like the big, one of the biggest indicators of that. And of course, the, the, the rampant rise in political violence and mass, mass shootings and so on and so forth is, are clear revelations of a society in decay. Um, even the, the way we entertain ourselves clear indications of a society that is alienated in, in decay. And I think that's, yeah. Yeah, so I just challenge you to apply, sort of digest these
0: uh, ideas of alienation and apply them to the way that you feel and the way that you uh, live your daily life and experience your work life specifically and economic life uh, and so on. Uh, Yeah, so that wraps it up. That's Marx's Alienation. Uh, You can find us online at revolutionandideology.com. We're on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. Um, I do just want to give a huge shout out to the few Patreon supporters that we now have. We haven't really done a good job, uh, intentionally so, on pushing people towards our Patreon. Uh, But we do have a few of our very first supporters on Patreon, which we appreciate so much. We can't even stress how much that means to us. If you do want to throw us a few of your hard-earned dollars, you can do that through Patreon. The links are on our website uh, and uh, on our social media. And after this episode, you know they were hard-earned yeah for sure uh yeah that's it uh until next time i'm nick i'm jared later